If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Uh, if, if you were to put a title on this, and I, sometimes I really struggle doing that, but it, this would be a worthwhile warning from Joel chapter 2. I'll remind you that uh, this was a specific prophecy written to Israel, uh, speaking to Israel, about Israel, but it also has contextual things that we can uh, glean from it to apply to us today uh, to help us understand God's will and God's purposes for our lives better. And I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to give you the, the one thing that I want to kind of hang this sermon on right out of the gate. So now some of y'all think that means you can doze off the rest of the time. Y'all, some of y'all know me well enough. If I catch you sleeping, I will call your name. <laughs> I ain't scared. If you've got a problem with that, you come see Neil Pepper. <clears throat> here, here it is. Here, here's the, the key statement that I want you to take away. If you don't get anything else out of this today, hear this. A warning is only worthwhile if someone hears it and heeds it. A warning is only worthwhile if someone hears it and heeds it. Now, I believe this, and I, I'm not bragging because, I mean, I don't have anything to brag about, but I will say this. I feel confident saying that if you if you sat under my preaching more than once, you cannot say at Judgment Day, I never heard the warning. Some of you have been in church a long time. Some of you have come to church over and over again in different churches and over the years in Sunday school groups and small groups and grow groups and discipleship groups and, and everything else and, and men's conferences and women's conferences and youth camps and D-Nows, you have heard the warning. But I want you to hear me. That warning is no good to you unless you heed it after you have heard it. We're going to talk about today the warning that God issues and I want you to understand that you have got to heed that warning. You're not going to stand in judgment and say, well, God, I, you can't send me to hell because I heard the warning. If you do that, God's going to say, yeah, but you didn't do anything about what you heard. It's no different than if you hear the fire alarms going off and you just sit here and you don't move and the fire comes in. The fire's not going to look at you and say, did you hear the alarm? Yeah, I heard it. Okay, well, we'll skip around you. We'll burn everything else and leave you here. It, it reminds me of the, the great movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where uh, some of y'all heard me say that <laughs> Everett is sitting there eating his piece of corn, and Big Dan Teague has already whacked uh, Delmar. And he looks at Big Dan and says, I don't get it, Big Dan. Well, listen, Big Dan took that tree, tree limb and smacked him in the face with it, and I'll tell you, he got it then. So some of you have heard the warning, but here's my question today. Are you going to heed the warning? We went to a concert, and I'm not going to mention the group, but let's just say they're from a more Pentecostal background. We did this, like the first year I was here, uh, little baby face Grayson, I see some pictures sometimes, just didn't have a hair on his face, he just, just an innocent, like a little cherub in the pictures, uh, a little redneck cherub with a, with a trucker hat on. Uh, but, but this was early on when I first got here, we drove to Pensacola, went to this concert, and like, those are my people, man, I'm a snake shaker from way back, okay? So it, they weren't going to do anything that was going to freak me out, I thought, I was wrong. But they started like yelling and hollering and were, all of our students that went with us who had been like raised Baptist, like sit on your hands Baptist, they started looking at me like, is this okay? Are we going to go to hell for this? Is this all right? And, and I'm telling you that story because of this, there was one guy in particular in this little uh, concert venue kind of thing, little theater kind of deal. We're in the balcony 
and, and I'm not, Grace, gonna back me up, April, that some of y'all were here. He was sitting several rows in front of us, down on the floor. We're in the balcony. Every time they would say something about, you know, your spirit language or whatever, you could hear this one brother down there letting it go. I mean, over everybody else, you could hear him. And I lean over, this might have been Grace, it might have been April, I said, if this, if this joint catches on fire, I hope my boy down there is the first one to see it. Because if he sees smoke or, fire or flames, we're all going to know. There'll be no doubt, because he was loud enough to where we would hear the warning. I hope this morning when you leave here, you can look at somebody and say, you know what, I heard the warning today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray you would heed it. So I want us to look at Joel chapter 2, and I want us to look at the warnings and then the required response that God gives Israel, and I want us to try to see how we can apply it today. So there's going to be four sections I'm going to break this chapter down into. not going to read a ton of it. I want you to read it on your own, but, but I want to break this down into four sections, and then as we close, I want to give you four questions from these four sections that you need to ponder, and you need to think about, it, and you need to answer on your own, okay? Let's pray. Father God, take this time in your word, take your flawed messenger and your perfect message and move me out of the way and speak clearly to us. Let us hear your voice. Holy Spirit, move in this place. King Jesus, be exalted because you're worthy. And Father God, bless and guide and let us hear and heed the warning today in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see here is that God tells us that we're to resound God's warning. In the first 11 verses, this is kind of what he's doing here. Listen to how it begins. He says, blow the horn in Zion. That, that word horn there is shafar, and it means a, a ram's horn that they would hollow out, uh, and I'll show you a little bit about that in a minute. But he says, blow the horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past and never will again in the generations to come. It's like he's saying, hey, get the word out. Run, tell somebody. There's, there's danger, there's problems, we're, we're, we have to get ready. He begins to make this call so that everyone knows that this day of the Lord is coming. Remember, we talked about the locusts that said whatever this, this you know, uh, stage of the life cycle of the locusts didn't eat, the next one did. And whatever that one didn't destroy, the next one did. And whatever was left, this one did. He's saying, you remember how bad that was? You remember how awful that was? We had no food, no seed. Uh, the, the land was just stripped bare. It was barren and we were hopeless. We couldn't do our normal worship. Remember that? And he's saying, that ain't nothing compared to what's coming. And so he tells them to blow this this horn, this is a shafar. Somebody got me this for my 50th birthday, and it's one of the cooler gifts. I didn't know exactly what to do with it when I got it. I kind of thought maybe there was candy in it. There wasn't, but uh, this is a really cool thing, and it's actually got a little sticker here. It's, it's kosher. It's, from, uh, they've, they've, it's actually like from a Hebrew place, so Israel. They get it. Now, I'm terrible at this. So I was hoping we'd have a trumpet player here, but the guy that I thought we would have is not here today. He's out of town. So I'm going to give it a shot. I want you to notice that the, the opening is very small, and you have to blow it like a trumpet. Trumpet players? Okay. If I don't, let me try it. 
If I, if I let you try it after I tried it in the first service, there's probably some kind of COVID police that will come get me, so I don't want to do that. All right. Why do I do these things? All right, that's not great. But do you see the point? Do you see how loud that was? I'm terrible at it, and yet it's very loud. You wouldn't think that that much sound could come. I mean, it's not like a trumpet or a trombone or something where it's got a big flare. It's just a little horn. They cut it off, they sand it to kind of smooth it, and then they hollow it out. That is the shofar. When the people of Israel heard that, they knew that that meant, hey, you need to buckle your chin strap. You need to, you need to get ready. Uh, Jeremiah 4.5, he uses this same thing. Other places in the Old Testament too. But listen to Jeremiah 4.5. Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem, and say, blow the shofar, blow the ram's horn throughout the land. Cry out loudly and say, assemble yourselves and let's flee to the fortified cities. What he's saying there is blow this horn, and when people hear the shofar, they know it's go time. we got to get ready. Run to the fortified cities. Don't be caught out where you can be picked off. Run into the fortified cities and get ready for an attack. And he says, imagine uh, this, this, this dawn spreading over the mountains. Imagine this image he's giving you. Have anybody ever seen the, uh, the, like, um, the telescope or the, uh, the satellite images where they show the earth when dawn is spreading? And how it just kind of comes over. I've been in the deer woods before, freezing to death, and you're praying for that dawn where that sun would hit you. And as it starts to come, it just kind of, there's nothing that can stop it. It's just proceeding. Imagine that here. Imagine uh, coming from our borders, coming onto our shores, this invading army that's just like, uh, like dawn breaking. It's just creeping across, and it's unstoppable. That's what this army is going to be like. That's what he's pointing them to. He's probably referring to the Assyrian army who came in about 701 B.C. You can read that in Isaiah 36 and 37. But, but he, he's, he's talking about this army coming that's unstoppable. It's just like the dawn spreading. And, and, and he's speaking of the Assyrians, but he's also talking to us and the remnant of Israel that there will be a coming day of the Lord where, where this terrible time will come in like the spreading of dawn. It'll be unstoppable. It'll just come in and sweep in. And this won't just be an earthly conflict. When the Assyrians came and attacked them and, and took them off, this was a, an earthly conflict that was terrible. When the locusts came in that he mentions in the first chapter, they came in and they destroyed everything. That was an earthly conflict. What he's speaking of and looking to the future about the day of the Lord, the great and terrible, he would say later, day of the Lord, he's speaking of a universal conflict. In Joel 3.15, he says, The sun and moon will grow dark. The stars will cease their shining. Here it's a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and total darkness. In Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18, I'm just going to skim this a little bit. He talks about it being rapidly approaching, a day of wrath, of trouble, distress, destruction, des desolation, darkness, gloom, clouds and total darkness, like here, a day of ram's horn, there it is again, and battle cry. He says, I will bring distress on mankind. They will walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh will be like dung. Their silver and gold will be unable to rescue them on the Lord, from the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, a horrifying end of all inhabitants of the earth. I want to remind you, as we listen for the resounding of God's warning that he promises in Genesis 8 to never destroy the earth by flood again. But he will destroy the earth before he sets the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. There's this great and terrible day of the Lord coming. Listen to me. When you stand at judgment, if you don't know Christ, that is going to be a great 
and terrible day. We're to resound God's warning. But also we're supposed to rend our hearts. He he tells them to rend your hearts. Verses 12 through 17. He says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Uh, This is the second call in his message to do something like this. Have a solemn assembly. Joel 1, 13 through 14. And what a solemn assembly meant, they would come, they would be... Uh, uh, clean, they'd be ceremonially clean and they would come into the presence of God solemnly, quietly and they would show their remorse over their sinfulness, they would repent of the things that they had done that did not please the Lord that were outside of God's will and he's calling all of Israel to do this why? because this day is coming and he tells them to tear your hearts or rend your hearts, not just your clothes it was commonplace at this time for men especially to rip their robes if they, were, if they were showing remorse openly and outwardly, uh, they were showing uh, brokenness, uh, sorrow, they would tear their clothes. They would, they would cover themselves in ashes. They would uh, wear sackcloth and they would sit in ashes. These were outward symbols that in this time period were common. So if you walked around and you saw a guy ripping his clothes, you knew that guy was in brokenness. He, his, his heart was shattered. He was either uh, repentant or he was remorseful or he was sorrowful. But it's an outward thing. Here's what God is saying here. I'm tired of you just tearing your clothes and then never changing. I'm tired of you tearing your clothes and putting on the ashes and then making people think that you're this broken, repentant person when I know that in your life there's still arrogance and selfishness and pride and refusal to bow your knee to the Lord God. Can I just tell you this morning, that's a good message for modern day church, not just a message for Israel. I believe that we are the same as Israel when it comes to that. Israel wanted to go through the motions. They, were, they wanted to live high on the hog and talk about how they were God's chosen people, God's holy nation, God's children. You know, a lot, I know a lot of uh, Christians in America that do that. You've heard me kind of rant on that before. I'm not going to do it again. But when I go look in your social media bio and there's a memory verse, or a little Bible verse, a little heart, and then I go look at some of the nasty things that you spew on your social media. And how you, and by the way, just FYI, when you comment on some of these like TV stations posts and Fox News posts or CNN posts, if, if you comment on their Facebook posts, a lot of times your pastor sees that pop up on his Facebook. Now I want you to hear me. If that made you go, uh-oh, then you need to repent to him, not to me. You need to repent to the Lord and say, maybe God, I'm putting my politics ahead of my faith. Maybe I'm putting my, uh, my American pride, maybe I'm putting my uh, whatever thing that you love, whatever uh, angle that you take on life, maybe I'm putting that ahead of my Christian walk. When I'm more worried about people making sure they know where I stand on this political issue or this social issue or this football team or baseball team or basketball team, when you want people to know that you are against or for some of this, But you're not concerned with people knowing the Lord Jesus. You've got your priorities out of line. And you better understand. You better hear and heed the warning that God is issuing. He tells them to rend their hearts. He reminds them of God's character, which should press on them the importance of the the benefit of repentance and submission. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will 
not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. Let me tell you what that doesn't say. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a memory verse on my social media bio. The, the sacrifice pleasing to God is not me wearing the church clothes and looking the part of a believer. The sacrifice that God is looking for that is pleasing to God is a broken spirit, a torn heart where you are remorseful. You're not sorry that you got caught. You're sorry for what you did. You're sorry for how you are, for, for the flesh winning that battle that day instead of you giving it over to the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 1.5 is a verse that I read way back before I had a title when I was just a, a volunteer just serving the local church. And let me just, for, for the record, if you're waiting for a title or a paycheck to serve the local church, get out! Don't go into ministry if you're looking for a title or a paycheck before you're going to serve the Lord. Paul writes this letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If my preaching and my leadership only leads to outwardly loving people, not inwardly changed people, only what, what the surface, surface layer of Christianity, where you just look the part. If that's what my preaching and leadership leads to, look at me, I'll quit. I'll dig ditches. I'll be a welcomer greeter at Walmart. I'll flip eggs at Waffle House. If our staff and our elders are only leading you to have this superficial, surface level change, and we're not showing you that the desire of God, the, the, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, a torn heart, then we are failing at our jobs. This, this statement here about God's graciousness, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and relents from sending disaster, sometimes we need that reminder, amen? Have you ever just been in a position, of a place of life, a valley, where you really just felt like either God is mashing me or has abandoned me. Anybody? Sometimes when we're in those places, it would be good for us to go read verses like this. God is going to give you your best chance to find Christ. He's going to give you your best shot at coming to know Jesus Christ. Not... not not superficially, but really a relational thing where you've given your life to Christ. And sometimes for you to get your best shot, you've got to take some shots. Sometimes for God to give you your best shot, you have to have loss and hurt and sorrow and disappointment and sickness and pain. That's not always God's punishment on you. Sometimes that's God's <laughs> warning shout. C.S. Lewis said pain and suffering is God's megaphone to a sleeping world. This is what we need to hear sometimes. God is not going to just bless you because you're a good person. God is not going to always just bless you because you're his follower. Sometimes God's biggest blessing on you is misery. It has been for me. If I came to faith in Christ at 26 after living the hellish life that I was living, the rebellious life that I was living, and God only did good things for me and I never had any more struggles, I want you to hear me. I would still be a little bitty baby Christian. I would not be on this stage. I would still be a little bitty baby Christian just struggling to make, uh, make sense of it all and put one foot in front of the other. I have seen God more in my suffering than I have seen God in my joy. 
But it's good to get these reminders. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, uh, the Lord passes in front of Moses when he's on the mountain to receive the tablets. And this is what he says. God telling Moses, he says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, sometimes you're hurting because God is getting your attention. Sometimes you're hurting because of you. You know, the everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're a bonehead and you make terrible life choices. And sometimes you are suffering because God is trying to punish you for your sinful behavior. Other times you are suffering because we live in a fallen world. I'll quote the great theologian, Hank Williams Sr., one more time. No matter how I struggle and strive, I ain't ever getting out of this world alive. There's a lot of truth in that. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. You know why God repeats stuff sometimes in Scripture? Because we're slow. We need that reminder. We need to, hey, read that again. Hey, hey, read it again and read it louder this time. Remind yourself of who God is. In verses 16 and 17, he asked the, the high priest to gather everybody. He says, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the infants, get everybody. Even the groom, there was tradition. You left the bride and groom newlyweds alone for a long period of time. He's like, nope, not here. Go get them. Get them out of their honeymoon chamber. Bring them in. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep before the portico, between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. This is God telling them, I know you're my special people, but you're not as special as you think you are. You see, Israel wanted to go around puffing their chest out and saying, well, I'm God's special people. I'm his prized possession. I'm his children. I'm a son of Abraham. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I follow the law, all 614 little dots and tittles. I follow everything. And so I'm, I'm better than you are because I'm an Israelite. And I know y'all have never heard a Baptist have that same attitude. I, I, didn't, hear, I didn't hear an amen, okay. So, so here's what Joel, in his message from God, says to the people. I want you to catch this. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? Why would people say that? Because Israel is being punished. Because Israel is going to have the Assyrians come in and, and squash them and haul them off to captivity. And Why would they say that about Israel? Because Israel is suffering. When you're suffering, that's your best opportunity to really have a great testimony for the goodness of God and your faith in Him. Why should it be said, who, where is their God when you're suffering, church? Why should it be said, where is their God when your candidate doesn't win, when your team doesn't make the big game or win the big game? Why should it be said, where is their God when you're having troubles and hardships? You see this all throughout Scripture. Psalm 79.10, why should the nations ask, where is their God? Psalm 115.2, why should the nations say, where is their God. Micah 7.10, then the enemy will see and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord? 
your God. They had an opportunity to make a decision here. They were in suffering. They were going to be in more suffering. The day of the Lord is going to be suffering that's going to make both of those look like nothing. Israel had an opportunity, much like the opportunity you and I have. Here's how Warren Wearsby summarized it. Here's the choice. The nation had to choose between revival, getting right with God, or reproach, robbing God of glory. When you lose a loved one, you have an opportunity to choose between revival and reproach. When you lose a job, you have an opportunity to choose between revival and reproach. When you lose, when you get a bad uh, diagnosis from a doctor, you have a choice, an option. Are you going to choose revival? Are you going to choose reproach? When you have anything bad happen in your life, anything bad come against you in your life, you have two options. You're going to give God the glory or you're going to take the glory from him and and wallow around in your suffering. I'm going to choose to give God glory. Job, I'm paraphrasing Job, though he slay me, I will glorify him. If he takes everything from me, he is no less worthy of praise. If he crushes me, my last breath in my lungs will be used to say glory to God. We have that same choice today. We can live in a way that is representative of our will being done, or we can live in a way that's representative of God's will being foremost in our decisions, in a way that shows the Holy Spirit moving in our lives, helping us to operate in His will. So we see His his call to sound His warning to rend our hearts, but then third, to regard God's promises. Verses 18 through 27, God responds here to the call to repentance And he says, if they repent and obey him, he will bring such a wonderful period of prosperity that it will make up for the time of suffering. I'm about to send you grain, new wine, fresh oil. You'll be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. He's talking about driving out the the foreigners and the the ones who are coming into their land. Uh, Banish him to a dry, desolate land. God is not abandoning Israel, and he's not abandoning us. We're going to talk about this next week, but there is going to be a remnant. There's a remnant of Israel that will be saved in the end, and there's only a remnant of humanity that will be saved because narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Some scholars believe that Psalm 126 was written as a result of this very promise that Joel speaks of being fulfilled. And listen to Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I love that. Not, not, you don't dream bad dreams. You have nightmares. It's not way somebody's talking about dreaming, like having uh, beautiful thoughts. Verse 2, our mouths were filled with laughter then and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Look at the, look at the dichotomy there. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And then look at what happens when God has restored and blessed Israel. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. I would make that a memory verse if I were you. Psalm 126, 5. Those who sow in tears will reap in shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. In other words, he went out 
throwing seed in misery, but he threw seed. He praised God. He gave God the glory. He shared the gospel. And when he came back in, he had joy because he, saw he had a harvest from what God had done. God promises in verses 25 and 26 and 27 to, to repay them for the disaster they had taken, that had taken everything and, and to bring back prosperity and joy to his people. Let me just skim that. He says, I'll repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate. And my great army I sent against you. Verse 26, you'll have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You'll praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. Spurgeon kind of commenting on this passage says this. I think this is really good for us to process in here today. You cannot have back your time, but there's a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. It is a pity that they should have been locust-eaten by your folly and negligence, but if they have been so, be not hopeless concerning them. We, we prayed for, me and April prayed for our dads for years. And years and years, and, and we witnessed to our dads for years and years and years. I baptized my dad two months before his funeral. I sowed in tears. I reaped joy. I've told a couple people this lately that are dealing with loved ones who are lost and, and who are straying. This is the prayer that you have to get to a point that you'll pray. And by the way, some of you in here, your mamas and daddies are praying this prayer now. Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I want you to save them. Not I want you to keep them healthy and happy. I want you to make them holy. We prayed that prayer for our dads, and our dads are no longer with us. But you know what? I know where they are. We prayed that prayer because we were desperate for our fathers to know Christ. And God in his benevolence answered that prayer some would say why are you happy that God killed your dad God didn't kill my dad God killed the old man that was my dad God restored my dad and raised him to walk in a new life he made him a new creation and I will see my dad again I'm, I'm anxious to see my heavenly father first I'm anxious to see Jesus but I'm going to see both of our dads in glory and that's going to be a good day church we see God's call to resound his warning, to rend our hearts, to regard his promises. Number four, to rely upon God's spirit. Verses 28 through 32. God promises that when his people have repented of their sins and remembered his promises, he will do this remarkable thing. He will pour out his spirit on them. I love this passage. I love especially verse 32. Paul, uh, Peter quotes this passage in his sermon to begin his sermon at, at, at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, he quotes this passage from Joel. He says God will pour his spirit out. That's a remarkable thing. It's the most amazing promise that God has given for those who follow Jesus because it means we don't have to do this life on our own strength. Listen to me. Some of you are struggling this morning because you're trying to do it on your own. God never intended you to do it on your own. By the way, you can't do it on your own. I tried that for 25 and a half years, almost 26 years. I couldn't do it on my own. What God told me was, you don't have to. I'm going to give you my spirit as a down payment, the Bible says, on your, on your, on your redemption, your salvation, your eternity. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going, to, I'm going to upload an onboard navigation system. You just got to be smart enough to listen to it. Every day you wake up and your spirit and your flesh go to war. Whichever one you feed is going to win. 
Whichever one you submit to is going to win. If you submit to your flesh, don't be surprised when you do stupid fleshly things. That's what the flesh does. I love the story of the frog and the scorpion. I know I tell this all the time, but it's, I love it. The floodwaters are rising, and they got to get it. The frog's sitting at the edge of this bank, and he's trying to get across this swollen river, and there's turtles and alligators and snakes, and he's like, man, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And he looks over, and there's a scorpion. And the scorpion, he looks at the scorpion, and he says, I need to get across, but I'm afraid of those other animals. The scorpion says, why don't we do this? I can't swim. I'll ride on your back, and you swim us across, and I will protect you from whatever comes to get you. If something comes, I'll protect you. And the frog says, how do I know you're not going to sting me? And the scorpion says, well, if I sting you, we both die. The frog thinks about it for a minute, and he basically says, I don't have any choice. He says, climb on board. The scorpion gets on. They start swimming across. They're about halfway across, almost to the other side. And all of a sudden, the frog feels this pinch, a sting. And he looks up at the scorpion, and he says, now we're both going to die. Why did you do that? The scorpion said, because I'm a scorpion. Your flesh will do the exact same thing. Your flesh will say, trust me. Trust me. Tim, trust me. I've got this. Eddie, trust me. Brenda, it's okay. I've got this. Sandy, I've got Jody. Just trust my, Your flesh will tell you that. Trust me. I'm going to take care of us. And you're going to get halfway across the river, and your flesh is going to sting you. You're both going to drown. And you know what the answer is to why it did it? Because it's your flesh. Don't listen to it. This most amazing promise that we get here in Joel and again in Acts 2 is that God will give us the Spirit to lead us, to, to guide us, to help our decision making. In verses 30 and 31, he speaks of his, his amazing displays of power in the universe before that great and terrible day when judgment comes. Jesus points to this in a way in Matthew 24. And don't read that right now. But listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, hey, be- hey fellas. And I'm paraphrasing. I know y'all... Y'all don't think Jesus said, hey, fellas, but I'm paraphrasing. He says, hey, fellas, y'all, y'all looking around and seeing all how, how fancy everything is? You see how nice all this stuff is? He says, not one stone will be left here on top of another that will not be thrown down. In other words, we're flattening all of this. All of this great stuff you're looking at, be like, man, Jesus, look how big this, look how great the temple is, and look how awesome these mountains are. And Jesus is like, we're going to flatten all of this before the time comes. When that day comes, all this is going to be destroyed and we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. And then verse 32, one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. As the Lord has promised among the survivors, the Lord calls. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a great reminder that God is sovereign over all the universe while allowing space for us to operate with free will and to choose to follow Christ. One of the biggest disagreements in all of Christendom and all of church life is the battle between Calvinism and Arminianism. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminianist. I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't understand. Listen, stop trying to work on master's level classes when you haven't taken your first freshman year class. Stop trying to sit in a doctoral uh, dissertation when you've never registered for classes in the first place. We need to stop majoring on the minors and start relinquishing control of our lives to the Holy Spirit. I don't know how it all works. I know the verses. I understand what Scripture says to, to some extent that God is sovereign, that there is predestination, there is election, the foreknowledge of God he talks about. 
But I also understand that in Peter, he says, one of Peter's letters, Peter, Peter writes this. He says, it's not the Father's desire that any should perish. If it's not God's desire that anyone should perish, then obviously there is free will. We have opportunities to make decisions. Uh, here's what I think. I think that our, our little finite pea brains cannot comprehend what an infinite sovereign God is doing. He's the only one that knows the end from the beginning. So does he know who's going to be saved? He does. He couldn't help but know. Why? Because he's sovereign and he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So what does that mean? Does that mean we just sit back and do nothing? I'm pretty sure the Great Commission doesn't tell us to do that. I'm also pretty convinced that the Great Commission is not busy work. Like, hey, Jesus, what do we do till you come back? Uh, it don't matter. I don't know. Just, I guess, make disciples. That's not what he did. He gave us a call, a commission, a command to go and make disciples, to share the gospel, to baptize, to teach. Because he's given authority to us to do so. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay? So the Father has to draw him. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So the Father has to draw him. Jesus has to be the gateway for them to get to God. In other words, he is the one that you have to put your faith in. That He will make you right. There's only one requirement to get into heaven, and that's that you be perfect. And the only, the only way for you to be perfect is to be covered in the blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he that knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God or put on the righteousness of God. That's how it works. How does the other stuff work? I don't know, and to be honest with you, I don't care. I'm not trying to tell God how to shuck his corn or, 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 or you know, shell his peas. When he told me to go make disciples, I went, yes, sir. And I've been doing that ever since I came to Christ. I'm going to do that until I die or I'm not physically, mentally able to do it. And when I get to heaven, if God says, hey, Kevin, all that stuff wouldn't have mattered, I'm going to save him on the same. I'm going to be like, sweet. <laughs> I sure did have a good time doing it. You sure blessed me when I got to see people come to faith in Christ. It's not fruitless. It's above your pay grade, and that's okay. Trust. Everybody in here, how many of y'all, when y'all came in this morning... Uh, you walked in and you took your chair and you checked every nut and bolt. You made sure all the screws were screwed in and all the bolts were bolted and all the glue and all. Did anybody check your seat? Did any of y'all sit somebody in a seat and say, okay, it works and move them out of the way and then you sat there? No. I hope not. If y'all did that, you're more OCD than I am. You need psychiatric help. <laughs> I'm not sure I don't need it, but I, if you did that, you for sure need it. Here's what you did. You know what I just did? I just, listen, what I just did was an act of total faith. I put my faith in that piano bench that when I sat my large self in it, that it wouldn't snap and dump me in the floor. Everything we do, church, is an act of faith. Well, science says, hey, unless you were there when it happened, you're putting your faith in it. I choose to put my faith in a God who loves me and gave himself for me. We'll close with this. I told you I had four questions. I want to give you these four questions. I want you to don't, don't check out on me. We're almost done. Four questions. Number one, have you heard the warning? We're to resound God's warning. Have you heard it? And I mean, do you feel conviction over your sin? 
I'm going to tell you, one of the most dangerous things you can do is get comfortable with conviction. Man, it's, it's, it's deadly. It's like drinking arsenic. It'll kill you. And again, I'm not talking about being sorry you got caught. I'm talking about you're sorry for the way that you are. You're sorry. Listen, I, I pray every time before I get out of that chair, come up here. God, empty me of me. I must decrease. You must increase. Y'all didn't know old Kev. I did. And I don't like him, and I put up with him all the time. I look in the mirror sometimes, and I see him looking right back at me, and I know he's in there. And I have to say, Lord, get rid of him. Fill me more with your Holy Spirit. Take him away. Have you heard the warning? Number two, have you torn your heart? In other words, have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ? Have you torn your heart? Listen to me. What I'm not saying is, have you walked an aisle? Have you prayed a prayer? Have you shook a preacher's hand? Did you get baptized? Have you got a certificate or something like that? We went on, y'all heard me tell this before too. We went on visitation one time uh, with Travis Free over at Rehoboth Baptist. And, and we're there, we're meeting with this gentleman, and it was about 3 in the afternoon, 3.30, and he was drunk as Cooter Brown. He was, I mean, he was eight sheets to the wind. And we're talking to him and trying to witness to him. And, and we said, well, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Do you know you would go to heaven? He said, oh, I know I'd go to heaven. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, hang on. And he went in the back of his little trailer and he came out with this old rusty, dusty Bible. That thing looked like it ought to be in some mausoleum. Look, you excavated it. It was so dusty. He, he paged through that Bible and he came up with this $2 bill. He said, right there, right there is where I know I'm going to heaven. And he handed it to us, and we looked at it. And on that $2 bill, it said, baptized on such and such a day by brother so-and-so. This guy doesn't darken the doors of a church. He's not plugged into a faith family of anything. He's not being discipled. He's not discipling others. He's not living by the commandments of God. Uh, the Bible clearly says it's, it's a sin to be drunk, and he's drunk. No repentance, no remorse, but he thinks he's going to heaven because he's got a $2 bill that some preacher signed in 1957 saying he'd been baptized. I've read this book cover to cover multiple times. I can't find that in here anywhere. Neil, I know you've read it. Have you seen it in here? Where you got at the last day, the angel, the sounds, the trumpet, and the angel comes by and gets the church rolls? I hadn't seen that. When you show up to Judgment Day, God says, where's your $2 bill with a preacher's signature on it? I hadn't seen that. Have you torn your heart? Not with lip service, with real repentance. Number three, have you studied God's promises. In other words, have you studied the word? Are you being discipled? Can you follow God's will for your life? You cannot follow the will of God if you don't know the will of God. And the will of God is written in the pages of this book. Brother Kevin, I don't like to read. I don't like to go to the doctor either, but I go. You know why? Because I don't want to die early. I don't like going to the dentist. I got an appointment Thursday. I'm dreading it like grim death. I, can't, I wish they would tranquilize me to get my teeth cleaned. I hate going to the dentist. But you know why I'm going? Because I don't want to smile like, you know, have no teeth. We do things we don't like because we know that they are necessary for us to be healthy. Why don't you read your Bible because of that same reason? I promise you, get in this word and let it get into you. It will change you, brother and sister. It will change your thoughts. It will change your actions. It will change your attitude. But not if it's sitting on a shelf in your house. You don't like to read? Get you a Bible app. It will read it to you. Failure to read the directions, just like when you were putting together your kids' Swing set or, or kitchen set when, you were, when they were younger will result in your life not being put together properly. Number four, are you controlled by God's Spirit? Again, that's the greatest promise we have in Scripture other than that Jesus is going to come and die for our sins. That we're going to get the Holy Spirit as a down payment to control us. Are you sure that you're saved because you have submitted your life to Christ and being led by the Holy Spirit living inside you? Full surrender 
to the Lord. You know why a lot of things in your life are out of control? Because you're trying to control them. You keep trying to steer, and God is trying to tell you, if you'll just hand it to me, I'll do a much better job than you. I'm a planner. I love to make plans. Can I tell you, my plans are never perfect. His always are. Have you heard the warning? Have you torn your heart? Have you studied God's promises? And are you controlled by God's Spirit? Would you stand with me? There's a warning in Joel 2 for the people of Israel. God is telling them that judgment's coming. He's telling that same thing to us. Go with me here. If, if I, I, I'm, let's say I go over to, to Hancock Whitney over here and I'm dressed in a South Alabama Jaguars uniform top to bottom. I mean, I, I got Keeks to hook me up with some uniform stuff and I got my helmet, shoulder pads, jersey, got my name on it, got the pants, got the cleats. And I walk in there and I sit in the stands in that stadium and the football game's about to start. How many of y'all think that Coach Womack is going to look up and see me and say, man, that guy looks like he's dressed out. Come on down here and tell me what position you want to play and get in the game. Not going to happen, is it? You're not going to heaven. You're not going to go to heaven because you look like you're a Christian. You better study the playbook. You better study the playbook. You better go to the gym. You better work out your own salvation, as Paul says, in fear and trembling. You better be a player, not just a poser. If you're here today and you've heard the warning and you want to respond in faith, put your trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to say a prayer in a minute. When I say amen, don't you dare look around to see anybody, if, if anybody else is moving. If you know God is convicting you of your sin and you want to repent of those sins and come to faith in Christ, when I say amen, that be, that's a starter pistol, brother, sister. You better book it down here. Jesus is very clear in Scripture. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. There are no secret service Christians in a free country like this. If you've made a profession of faith in Christ, you know it was real, but you have not been living according to that profession. You have been walking in disobedience, walking in the flesh, and you want to repent of that today and rededicate your life to Christ, you can do that. If you need to join our church, move your letter, all of those things, any of those things you need to do, come see me. If you're holding a grudge against another brother and sister in this building, when I say amen, you go see them. And you apologize for holding a grudge, and you ask for forgiveness, and you make that relationship right. It's a worthwhile warning, but a warning is only worthwhile if it is heard and heeded. Let's pray. Father God, take control of this time. Use it for your glory. God, I feel like I've done what you put me here to do today, and I know that your Holy Spirit has the authority to do what he wants to do, so I pray he would today. I pray that you would prick hearts. I pray that you would break hearts. I pray that you would bring somebody to salvation today for your glory. Whatever you want to do, God, move in this place. Let us be instantly obedient and we'll give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.